Welcome to the Everything EC podcast. I am your host, Carla Ward, and joining me today is Alex Scavone, who is the Executive Director of Friends Center for Children in New Haven, Connecticut. She is an early childhood education provider and serves on the Child Care for Connecticut's Future Coalition, representing partners working to increase public funding for early care and education across the state. Alex shares some really innovative practices that many of us could take back to our governments to help support early childhood educators. I hope you find this podcast episode as inspirational as I did. Welcome to the show, Alex. Thanks, Carla. It's really nice to be here. I am so excited for us to be talking about a crisis, a problem that we're having in childcare right across, I feel, the globe. I don't think any country is fully paying their ECEs the way they should be paid, having a spot for every child in their centers, and just treating early childhood the way it should be treated. So I'm glad that we're addressing this crisis, and let's dive in. So my first question is, what exactly is the child care crisis? Yeah. So the what and the why are the two like critical pieces, right? So the, the child care crisis is really about affordability, access, lack of funding, right? All these things that are, like you said, are really international. And it shows up just in every possible way. So the providers make too too little. Both of us were providing the service. Early childhood educators make poverty level wages in the states. I'm sure that's Here you know too. our measures. Yeah, so I'm sure that's consistent. Parents pay way too much, and it actually has an impact on businesses too because they can't find employees who can work because they need childcare. So we have it just it is seeped into every aspect of our personal, you know, emotional, social economic, fiscal lives. Uh, the why to me is really the, the really interesting piece that I that I think about a lot. In our country, you know, the why really relates and roots back to our deep-rooted racism and sexism because childcare in the States really grew out of slavery, was the first sort of organized childcare. And in our country, the early care and education system is disproportionately women of color. And that is deeply rooted to the low wages as well. And then we, I don't know about Canada, but for us, we're 98% female as well as a workforce. Oh, I don't know about percentage, but I would certainly say it's a very high percentage. I don't think I've ever actually in 18 years, I don't think I've ever had a male co-teacher. Yeah, right. Me neither. Yeah. I've been doing it 32 years. So So there you go. So it's looked at as women's work. Right. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at something with women's work and you take the lens that societally we assign to women and value to women and then to women of color, right, you come up with this completely underfunded, marginalized, under-resourced system. And historically in our country, it was looked at as, okay, if, if we need childcare, a woman should stay home and a two-household family should be able to provide that, right? And that's mm-hmm. not the reality of what we live in anymore. Even, yeah, go ahead. No, and it's funny because people can't see me and I'm like already tongue in cheek over here because I'm like, I would lose my mind. And that's my personality. Listen, for people who want to stay home, that's great if it works for them. But it's the not having the choice. That's when we have a problem because like you say, and we know historically, childcare has been portrayed as women's work. Then I'm like, 
great. Yeah, it is women's work. But then when you look at how that's not a great thing. Yeah. Then we have, like, we really do have a problem. And you're absolutely right. Like, that's the why of the crisis. Yeah. And it's so defeatist, right? As someone who's been in this field for a long time, to to pause and think about how we're seen and how we're valued in that way. And what's so disturbing about it is this new awareness that we have. And I, so I believe that if you know better, you should do better. Right? 100%. So we're now at the place where we as a society, and this is in, you know, this is across every the globe, as you said, we know better. We know that early care and education and that brain development and that time of life is critical for every aspect of the rest of our lives as individuals and as a collective society. And we know that and we still choose, choose, mm-hmm. and I say choose very very, very intentionally, we choose not to fund it adequately. And we choose to make people work in poverty and we choose, you know, to continue to, you know, divest as opposed to invest in our children. And disrespect, right? Like there is, it is disrespectful towards the people that work in the field. It is disrespectful to the children. And I always think about my church and I hope that nobody from my church is listening to this, but my church is very much an older community. Yeah. And I was their youth group leader for a very long time and eventually had to leave just because of my own schedule. But I look at my church and they have not invested in their youth. And what I'm watching now after being a member of the church for so long is their older generation is dying out. Yeah. And because they haven't invested in their younger learners, there's nobody to come up and yeah. If we don't start doing that as a whole in society, that's yeah. exactly what's going to start to happen. We are not going to have young learners who understand the importance of play, they understand the importance of education, that understand the importance of belonging and communication yeah. and being caring. Like that is such a huge part of what we do as ECEs is we teach diversity, we teach collaboration and conflict resolution. Yeah. If we're not providing that, then we're going to have a world that's just, well, it is already falling apart, but a world that even falls apart even more, right? Yeah. Yeah. Two things you said resonate with me. One is, so I run a Quaker program. Uh, We are not religious, but we are rooted in Quaker values, which we are part of a meeting house, which is what you're saying part, you know, meeting house is a church in, in the Quaker sort of world. And so we started like almost all preschools, in my opinion, or early care and education, we started in the basement of a church because it's the only place where you can get that free rent or subsidized rent to be able to make your business model work, right? And Mm -hmm. it still doesn't, but at least you can patch it together, right? It's like a quilt, right? But we had the same thing. So the meeting was an older generation's, you know, institution and organization and been around for a long time, but they didn't have young members. And having us come into that space, we now have parents of our, you know, infant toddlers or preschoolers who are now going to meeting. They've never been a Quaker before. They're not part of that, you know, sort of religious side of the world, but have really adopted the values. And now you see their their first day school, which is what you're talking about, is now full, right? It's that, really- That's amazing. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's that sense of community, yes. right? Sure. Like that is a huge part. People need community, regardless yes. as to, you know, if it's church or if it is a gathering yes. or it's your childcare yes. center. Like right. some of the best childcare centers I ever worked for were ones yeah. where parents built their own community. Yeah. Like, and also this idea that the, the family unit is different, 
than it was, you know, 60, 100, whatever many years ago, right? Yeah. So we have families in our program. So a mom and a child or a, a mom and a grandma and a child or, you know, a dad and a, who don't have any other family. They've made uh, choices for their own well-being to, to be on their own. And so they create this community to what you talk about. It's not possible to, to, to do this life alone, right? No, I mean, it's you really not. need that. And so I'm I, a family of immigrants. You need, yes. especially when the, we do have so many immigrants coming into Canada, coming into the U.S., yes. yeah. their family is thousands of miles away. So Absolutely. they need that community in their child care program. Such a good point. And it's what's best for children. I mean, we are social creatures. If you get down to the development of young children, which is what we do, you have to have a network of support that surrounds them and surrounds the family unit. 100%. And early care and education programs can do that. And they can do that in a way that schools cannot. So this is a big thing that I always talk about, which is we are the front line in every way. We see the families twice a day for pickup and drop off. Whereas on a school, you take a bus and you get dropped off, right? So it's a very different relationship. And we can be with the family, just like any ECE provider, for up to 10 years if they have three kids. So you can see that family completely evolve in so many ways. And we are the constant, right? We are the the ones who can help that through, you know, long-term struggles or immediate, you know, someone dies, an immediate struggle or a long-term, like someone's managing a divorce or the, you know, the a relationship coming on undone and that's just so overlooked it is completely it really is. overlooked and especially at the rate of development for zero to six as well yes. a child changes so much so quickly in those first six yeah. years that we have a privilege and I do believe it's a privilege to be part of that I agree and again it comes back to it is so disrespected from the child towards yeah. the child towards the caregivers towards the families as well absolutely and that, and that idea that um that zero to six range, this is what I was saying by we know better now. We know that that time of development is is the most rapid and the most critical for future learning. And so you're creating this foundation. That's just on brain chemistry, right? But then you've got the emotional piece of it and the social emotional piece and and the tools that you can you can gain during that time, which then set you up for future life challenges and future, you know, not toxic stress, but sort of that positive stress and how to manage that and get through some toxic stress situations without having it completely rewire your brain and all those things. And we still are not putting, and we're not investing in it. It's we're very, not. It's really surprising when you think about it from, from a rational perspective. Absolutely. And my husband and I talk about this, we were just talking about this and I've spoken about it on the podcast before was like, we joke that, you know, you could go work at Target for $20 an hour, Absolutely. right? Over here. And then I say, well, the challenge is that Target sells a product. So therefore yeah. you purchase a product, you put money into Target. Therefore Target has the money to pay its employees $20 an hour. Totally. Right? So children yeah. are not a product. You cannot purchase children. Yeah. So therefore, is that why we don't have the money? And I find that hard to believe that that's why we don't have the money, but that's the society we live in, right? Product, exchange, money. Yeah. And it goes yes. back in. So what do we do? That's exactly what's happening. So we've been set up to fail. Like as we are in a free market system and we cannot operate as a free market 
operator, like the way you just said. So we we could charge families more. Like we could just raise our rates to the true cost of care and no one will be able to afford it. I mean, we, like we are right now being dictated by market rate instead of the true cost of care. And so that's why we are unable to, to pay our teachers. And what's really amazing about that is, you know, the government, in our case, you know, the government has set us up so that it's like us against parents in that, in that scenario, mm-hmm. right? Which is a really just, it's the fact that you can have a four-year-old who set, we were set up so the parents against the provider, but then the minute they get to kindergarten, it's a public good. It's really just, again, a product of our naive and, and sort of backwards thinking, right? We know that early care and education is a public good, a social good, and it should be part of the system that is subsidized by the government. 100%. It's just the bottom line. No, and so, exactly. what, yeah. And then the, the, but what we're doing to parents, so parents, which I just found this fascinating, but their lowest earning potential is when their child is zero to two. So oh, like, I believe that. Of course, like me too. I'm exactly that. And the highest earning potential, like when you finally get into your career is when your child's around 15 or 16. This is, this is international. This is just who we are. And because you come out, you have young children, you're younger, your career is not really established. You're figuring it out. And so that liquidity restraint is at a time when we're asking them to pay the most, right? Zero to five. That's such a good point. And so what happens then is you have people who say, I can't do this. I'm going to stay home. I, it's cheaper for me to stay home. And then this is where it becomes another female burden because most women stay home, yeah. right? So you lose career earnings. You lose sort of that moment, momentum of your career. And, and, and again, I think it should be a choice. If you want to do that, then absolutely. But being forced to do it is really the, the thing that I object to. And so. that's exactly, it, it's taking away the choice. And that will yeah. always be the issue that I have. Like I run yeah. my own company and we don't have children yet, but my husband and I have already discussed that yeah. nobody yeah. in our household wants me putting a hundred percent of my energy into them because I yeah. will drive us all insane. <laughs> so we've already agreed, but I have the privilege of running my own business. So yeah, yeah. I can decide when and where I want to work, but not everybody has that privilege. Absolutely. And having to not be allowed to make that choice is absolutely disgusting. Yeah, it really is. And so that cost is really, we talk about how the cost of childcare is exorbitant and it's really expensive. And it is to the family who's at the lowest range of their income. And it really isn't expensive in terms of the quality and what we're providing, right? So it's this, it feels expensive because we're asking the individual to pay for it instead of looking at it as a social good. And we refuse to look at the rate of return, right? Like we just, we don't look at all the economic and individual and social benefits and, and, you know, some of the work of Heckman and looking at sort of historical rate rate of return and some data analyses, like we're looking at a 13% return for families who really don't have access to high quality care. So once you provide that high quality care, you can see a huge return and it shows up in every part of our society. Oh, so 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 completely. I would love to see data on resiliency and I don't even know if this exists, but how children who were exposed to childcare prior to COVID how they coped versus children who were already home prior to COVID. Because yeah. I look at my my tutoring kids that I work with, I feel like 
some of my tutoring kids that I had in childcare that are now on the older grades, I feel like they were way more adaptable to the changes compared to my students who had, who had stayed home with their parents, Um, which is funny because they were already used to staying home with their parents. But my students that had done the childcare, I just felt like their resiliency was much higher and they were Mm -hmm. much, they found it much easier to adapt, but that's such a small pool of students, right? It's so hard to say, is that the norm? But I really, it makes me so curious. Yeah. Well, you talk about that. I mean, we look at COVID as a trauma, right? Which is what it was. So if you take that sort of an extrapolated out, like the largest study that's ever been done was by CDC and Kaiser Permanente, and they looked at adverse childhood experiences. And so they looked at traumas, right? And it was 17,000 people. So huge sampling. Of that study, 74% of them said that they had experienced an adverse childhood experience. And that is something like death of a family member, divorce, poverty, you know, emotional abuse, physical abuse. There's a whole list. And what was really interesting about that study is that one, most people could get over one adverse childhood experience, depending on what it is, if they had a support network. When you get into the two, three, four, the impact of that on on you as an adult. So this is like, you know, childhood experience. And then what happens to an adult, it's obesity, it's incarceration, it's addiction, it's mental health, divorce. I mean, just your earnings go down by like thousands and thousands of dollars. So, so we know that these traumas in this early pace, which is what you're talking about, like these co- this co- and COVID wasn't even part of that, right? Neither was racial. They didn't have racial or, or cultural a question about that. So 74% without racial, you know, that's without including racial trauma. We'd be at 100% if we really included those type of things. And so those traumas, the way that you interrupt that cycle is a caring, loving relationship with an adult, right? Amazing. So we as we could be that as, as ECE providers, like you may be, anyone listening to this may be that, right? You don't know what you're doing for that child at that time to create and really help sort of move through the toxic stress that you're, that, which gets to your resilience piece. Um, What's that sense of safety, right? Yes. And just what it does, though, to the actual brain development, like it, it really changes the way your brain operates. Oh, um, 100%. 100%. Alex, I want to dive into a bit more about like sure. you as an educator, but also like the work that you do so that we can dive more into what your organization is doing to sure. move us forward through this crisis. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your organization that you work for. Yeah, so I don't even know where to start. It's a hard one. <laughs> I've been doing this for a long time. I think 32 years. You know, I this is really a everyone everyone who's an ECE says this. This is a passion project, right? This is I was meant to do this. I I love it. I think for me, like my seat at the table comes from a very direct relationship to my early life. So I I was a, a child who had a very high adverse childhood experiences score. I had a lot happening in my early life that made me unsafe. And my what really saved me, if you sort of look at it, like why I am not one of those statistics of, you know, being an addict or being dead, you know, that sort of side of things, which is really scary when you think about it, was really the fact that I had amazing educators. I had people, school was my safe place. So for me, I knew that... I was around 16 when I sort of was getting out of that space and really saying, I'm not going to live in this. I need to find my own way. 
I made a commitment that if I got out of it, I was going to try to create safe sp spaces for children. And so that's what led me to starting this school with the uh, members of the meeting um, here in New Haven, Connecticut, where we are. And we now, so we started that school about nine years ago. We now have two schools and we're in the process of opening two more. We'll wow. serve about yeah, 275 to 300 children when we're done. And it's zero to five. So I come to it from, from that lens, which is a really, I see it as critical, right? It is a critical piece, which we, those of us who are in the field know that and do that. We know that exactly. Yeah. And your, what is your center called? Uh, we're Friend Center for Children. What what I love about our work is that the organization in and of itself is willing to uh, be mission driven. So we make decisions that are based on what we really want to see in the world. And that's a really different way of making decisions, right? I mean, you can make decisions for your bottom line. You can make decisions because you want to be the best at this. or But if you really want to be a mission driven place, Sometimes you have to make decisions that are like a leap of faith or may, you know, may not be what's best for the organization. I'll give you an example. During COVID, we decided when we had to shut down, we were not going to charge our families for those, you know, eight weeks. And that was a mission driven decision. It was not what was best for us financially. So we had to hope that we were going to figure that out. And we did. But that's, that's sort of what I love about where I am. I am a very much a mission person. Like I actually teach a course on creating your mission, vision, and values as an early childhood educator. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Because especially values and having a mission, yeah. it's one, it's the best way for you to find a center that aligns with you, because I'm sure we've all worked in centers that we were like, wow, this is not the place for me. <laughs> and so when you have those mission, vision, and values, you know that before you even cross the threshold of a certain center. Yeah. But also when you're put in a situation, you can say, okay, hang on. Yeah. Does this align with yeah. where I'm trying to go? And yeah. so I am all about mission driven. Yeah. It makes it much easier, honestly, for that reason, like being able to point to something. You, you mean, we all have conflicts when you're in, uh, you know, parents may not like this part of what, what we're doing or a staff member may question why we have to do that. And, and to be able to say, it's really part of this and explain it. It, it's much easier than saying, well, that's because that's our policy, right? I mean, 100%. one one cause that when I well, if we say something like that's our policy, that just creates antagonism, you know, like that's just creates just distrust and discomfort versus here's what we're thinking. Like, what, tell us how that sits with you. It's a very different reflective process than- 100%. Yeah. And it makes it so easy to say, like perfect example. I mean, we've all done it in childcare where you've got to send a child home that's sick. Yeah. Right. And you feel terrible because the parent only left 20 minutes ago. The child's yeah. got a fever of 104 and you're like, hi, I'm so sorry. You need to come and get your little yeah. one. Yeah. And the parents are freaking out and you're like, I'm so sorry. Like our mission is to keep our children happy and safe. Right. And right yeah. now by keeping your child here, we're not keeping them safe. They back right off versus mm, that's our policy. Your kid can't have a fever here. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's just, I mean, the, the, the tension that it again, goes back to this like versus child care providers versus parents, as opposed to child care providers and parents in partnership to create a space and community, right? And that, that's the real work. But when you talk about sort of that mission driven, what it has allowed us to do is really tackle these systemic injustices, right? And like this idea that we should be paying 
not that we should be, this idea that we are paying women to live in poverty. Like that was something we were really uncomfortable with. And so, you know, our average salary is $14,000 above the state average right now in Connecticut where we are. And that's still not enough, right? That's that's just going, that we, I consider us the best of the worst, right? I mean, you're still like not where we should be as an industry. So we really looked at that and said, okay, how do we shift this deep ingrained mindset, right? And the the question we had to wrestle with was what every, this is for, this is international, what every program's wrestling with, how do we pay teachers more without raising expenses for parents? And I was just going to ask, yes. well, how That's do you it. pay $14,000 more yeah. a year without charging parents up the nose? Yeah. So what we did is we we really looked at that problem. We call it an essential question. And we re- wrestled with that essential question for a long time. I would have been thinking about it for, you know, two plus years, right? And so we were looking at it from every angle and um, coming together as a board and as a community. And it became clear we couldn't. We could not figure out how to do it without charging parents more unless the federal government stepped in. So we started to think about the problem differently. And we said, okay, if we can't give them more money, how do we remove their individual expenses? What can we do to take expenses away from them? So then we surveyed our staff and there were 29 teachers at the time when we did the survey. And we said, what are your four big biggest expenses? And at the time, only one teacher owned their own home, which is just a product of the dysfunction of our system, that we have an entire workforce that only one teacher on their own home, ranging in age from, you know, 22 to 65, right? I mean, just really disturbing. So rent was the number one expense for our teachers. The second was food, then it was transportation, and then utilities. So we decided to tackle them in that order. So we started first with rent, and we said, okay, we can't pay their rent, because that if we could, we would just pay them money. But if we could figure out how to get one-time investment to purchase homes for them to live in, then they could live rent-free. And so that's what we did. We really then approached housing advocates and childcare advocates and really the intersectionality of housing and ECE and, and teachers. And we purchased two homes. We have four teachers who are living in those homes. So it's four women, all single moms living in those homes. And then in the fall of this year, we're actually building a house right now that we, again, are partnering with the Yale School of Architecture. So we have land that a donor gave us. They are building the house. And we have two more teachers moving in next month. So as of October, we will house six educators and seven children, and they will live rent-free. And so their salaries, in effect, go from, let's say their salary is I'm making this up. Let's say it's 20,000. The average rent cost right now in our state where we are is around um, 18,000 to 20,000 a year, right? For a decent one bedroom, two bedroom that will then raise their salaries by, you know, 20 to 25,000. So it's really amazing. Yeah. It's an amazing initiative and we're so excited about it. And we're trying to get it to translate to government investment because it's a much smarter use of dollars. It's a one-time cost versus having to raise salaries every year forever. So you have to do both, right? You can't just do housing and then be like, it's done, the the issue's solved. You need to raise salaries, but you can also offer some workforce housing as a way to help solve this crisis. 
Well, and it's innovative thinking. And I am all about innovative thinking because yeah. you can't, you cannot raise the cost yeah. of childcare for parents. We cannot go any higher. Like no. it's because yeah. there's so many trickle effects, right? You raise the cost of childcare, parents stop sending their children to childcare, ECEs lose their job because there's no children in childcare. Yeah. Like, and this is the vicious cycle of the crisis that we just yeah. keep dealing with. Yeah. But, oh my gosh, if I could have my rent covered, yeah. then I might be able to actually put money aside. I yeah. might actually be able to, you know, like I think back to my first year of teaching, I moved out of my parents' house and God love the center I used to work at. They used to send me home with food. So they would yeah. make sure that I had leftover lunch because yeah. I had to make a choice, rent or eating. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. And I know I'm not the only person that was in that position. Oh, no, I, my first job out of, I had three jobs. <laughs> like I taught, which was my real job. And then I worked at Ann Taylor on the weekends. And then I tutored at night. I mean, you can't live on one salary. We have to stop that. Like that oh. does not make me, uh, you know, it's sort of like, I say it proudly because it's sort of like I had to get, but that should not be a badge of honor. That should no. be. That should be a reflection of the society. Oh yeah. Right? That's how I started a business. I taught from yeah. seven to four every day and yeah. then tutored four 30 to nine 30. And eventually I was like, I'm out. Like yeah. Yeah. I can, I've got to pick just one. So I started a tutoring business because it was at the end of the day, it was more profitable to tutor five hours than go to work five days. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. And so we have to, we have to recognize that the drain on the system, the drain on the individual, right? All these things that we we do and we continue to do that just are decimating. So, so when we started our conversation, like, what is the crisis? That's the crisis. We're like intentionally sabotaging and decimating the system and the people in the system. And it's, yeah, it, it's appalling. It's absolutely yeah. appalling. And every time I'm on the podcast, I'm like, you've got to talk to your MPs. You've got to talk to, I don't know what the equivalent yeah, is in yeah, the yeah. West, but legislators, like yeah. your legislatives legislators but i sometimes think we don't know what to tell them yeah so we're in, we are right now in, in our state in connecticut we have a governor who has started this something called the blue ribbon panel which is a is a great opportunity to it's a blue ribbon panel on child care so it's basically a group of people looking at child care so this is our moment right? When you talk about don't know what to say, like this is our moment to say whatever it is we have to say. And what we have to say is all the things we've just said collectively yeah. here today. But the bottom line is making the connection between what is happening now and the fiscal and economic impact on the community. And that can be anywhere, right? So it's yeah. just like, doesn't matter where you live. And trying to get the collective voice, that's the hardest part, right? Because we are so siloed. If you are in crisis mode, you're only able to see what's right in front of you. So true. So asking us to do the work to fix the system is like, I mean, what we've done historically in our collective, both Canada, every society, right? We take the people who are most burdened who are at the bottom of the system and we say, oh, you're unhappy, then you have to work to fix it. Like provoke demand. Right? It's yeah. so frustrating. So the key that I would say for anyone anywhere is form a coalition, find your people. Like even if it's five providers, that makes a big difference than one provider, right? It's like, just make your group and then find your constituent 
So in our group, like in our, in our, where I am, I have like a state legislator and then there's a federal legislator, right? So I go to the state legislator, but you don't go alone. You bring your five other people who are from your area. It's because yeah. that is what they react to, right? So it's a dysfunctional system. We're in a dysfunctional system trying to change a dysfunctional system with people who don't have all the knowledge that we have either, right? For sure. Absolutely. And we're really lucky here in Ontario. We actually have like the AECO, the Association of Early Childhood Educators, and they are our rah-rah-rah party. They're our voice for sure. But I think sometimes people think, oh, well, they're doing it. They've got this covered. Yeah, no, they don't. No, they don't. And that's exactly it. And again, right, having conversations with people in different states, in different countries, like I look at yeah. the UK, they've got the Shaping Us project that they're doing right now with um, the princess. And it's been really interesting to watch that, like how they're trying to inv- invest in early childhood education. And so paying attention outside, like you said, when you're in crisis, you only see what's in front of you. Yeah. And sometimes the answer is not in front of you. You have to look at what other places are doing yeah. because the people in your country, your organization, your province don't necessarily know. So, oh, there's so much work to do in our industry. <laughs> yeah. And I said to you, you know, when we were offline before, we we're at right now at the state level at the Connecticut, we are bringing forward like what they're doing in Canada, yeah, the $10 a day, think. right? Yeah. As As a... We're looking at that. We have local uh, local states who are doing that work. And the same, we're trying to get to, one of the things that we're pushing for in our country, but also in our state, is 7%. Parents pay 7% of their income. And that should be the cap. Right now, parents are around 18 to 20% in our in our state. I mean, could you just think about that? It's huge. They pay that, and then they pay like 20 to 30% in rent. So almost 60% of your income is gone, just, just on... Not yeah. food, nothing else, not any living. No, and, and then it comes back to the thing that I've heard so many times from friends. Well, I'm basically going to work to pay for my child's care. Yeah. Okay, right. that shouldn't, again, that shouldn't be your choice either. Like, that shouldn't be happening. Right. And then, you know, what? what's so short, short-sighted in, in, in IC. So there's other, the other industries don't recognize the impact that that, which you just said, has on them. So for example, if you... I talk about this all the time and trying to get like the uh, real estate industry to, to work with us. So if you are family, a young family, and remember, you're also looking to buy your first house, right? Like you're sort of all these things are happening at the same time. If you were spending less on your childcare, you could buy a, you could invest more in a house, in a home. That's so the, the, the real estate market, like it would change their price point. Like, so as a real estate industry, they should be arguing for social investment and, you know, federal or government investment in early care and education, because it would impact their industry. Like they would have higher price points. They would get bigger commissions. They would see more. So oh, like absolutely. people don't make the connection. You're the spending power of a family who only has to pay 7% versus 20% of their income changes your tax revenue across the state or a, or a province or wherever you are. Oh, the trickle effect is huge. And I honestly Ooh. thought that COVID was going to change that Me because, too. um, yes. yeah, but as soon as it was over and things opened up, oh, we're back at the bottom of the, t- like at the yeah. bottom of rung. Right. And I was talking to somebody whose childcare center is only for hospital staff. The hospital has over 400 jobs available that they cannot fill because yeah. there is no childcare space. Yeah. 
Absolutely. We're at this tipping, but not tipping point, because we say this, I mean, so in our country, we almost had universal pre-K 50 years ago, and it was vetoed by Nixon. So it was agreed to in, you know, the House and the Senate, and then the president vetoed it. Then we almost had it about two, three years ago. I don't know. I think it's all blurred. All the time is blurred together now, maybe a year ago, but during Build Back Better. And, you know, Biden wanted it and the Senate wanted it and we couldn't, no, the House wanted it and we couldn't get it through the Senate, right? So it's like we have 50-year increments of where we're doing the same thing and we Mm -hmm. can't get out of our own way. And what's frustrating now is, as I said, we know better, but also we have proven the economic impact. So for us, we're, we lose about $122 billion per year in our country for not having a zero to three system. Just zero to three, not even zero to five or zero to six. So it makes no, like, what other argument can we possibly come up with? And this um, is, right? Like, yeah. because they don't, I think it's because there's no physical product. But when you look at the data of children who, you know, even played with blocks, zero yeah. to three. Yeah. Just and the it. outcome yeah. of their math marks in high school, yeah, right. there is a huge correlation between children who were engaged in blocks in preschool compa- and in comparison to their math marks. Those kids do better. Yep. I'm like, Absolutely. there's data. And I'm like, how can you ignore this? But because you can't physically see a three-year-old suddenly doing this, 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 and this, yeah, they don't see the value. Yeah. So, so those those gains that you see, like social, emotional, cognitive, the physical development, language skills, problem solving, everything, creativity, all that, that they are going to have all the, the stronger skills. It translates to stronger math skills, reading skills. And you talked about this new study that just actually was being looked at from uh, in Tulsa. Right. So Tulsa, Oklahoma, looking at Educare, which is sort of a large provider in our in our country. I don't know if you have Educare. I don't think they're international, but no, um, but I have them coming on the podcast in a few weeks. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. So but anyway, they starting school before age two helps avoid the achievement gap. That's basically the the crux of the study. Right. And it's a small sample, but it still was a study. And it shows like, okay, these children have less of an achievement gap when they're in this care at this time. So really like we've made this argument that investing in the pre-K three or pre-K four, we really have to be investing since since birth, right? I mean, if we yeah. really want to see that. So it's proven at this point. Now it's just a question of the will, right? Yeah. We know what to do. We know we should do it. It's just a question of, are we going to? Yeah. And, and that's, that's yeah. the age old question. It is. It is the age-old question. I think that, you know, if we really were going to be radical about it, we would put people in positions of power, so voting people in, who who understand the lived experience of the people who are in the system. Now, wouldn't that be something? Yeah. <laughs> because for us, a lot of the people who are in power positions still in our country don't understand the lived experience of being unable to afford childcare of having had to take care of children, of being female, you know, all the things that being a person of color that are just missing. So they don't see it as a lived reality. No. And yeah. certainly we could go on for a while with that one because yeah. there are yeah. so many opinions on that. And I'm laughing because I always come to a podcast interview with a list of questions. 
And I'm going through our questions of like, oh my gosh, we've covered so much and more. Like, (laughs) and I love those kinds of podcasts where it's not question, answer, question, answer, because especially in something as serious as a crisis, it's that conversation has to flow between educators, between legislators, between people outside of our industry. We we're so quick to stay in house and talk among other educators, right? But we know what the problem is. Yeah. Like we, it is so obvious to us. It now has to get outside of our group and just, we have to see a change soon because it's going to turn, it's going to go from bad to worse if changes don't happen soon. Yeah. I I really appreciate that point. And I think that is a disservice that we do to ourselves and to our industry when we only focus on the echo chamber, right? Like only talking to people who who know exactly what we're trying to say and who get it because that's not the problem, no. right? You're not the problem. I'm not the problem, right? It's like, so we have to bring it out and talk about it in a way that resonates. And so that's where in looking at other industries like the business industry. So Vermont is one of the states, our neighboring states here. They had a 10-year campaign where they worked with their businesses because they couldn't move the initiative on their own. They could not, and by they, I mean us, like those of us in the field and really, and actually the governor vetoed the first attempt at their, when they got legislators to sort of champion what the industry wanted, the governor vetoed it. And so the businesses stepped in and really made a push. And so it passed and went through in that state because the child care provider industry partnered with the business industry. And that and is that's huge. Huge. I think that is the only way that we are collectively going to be able to move this forward. This is a workforce issue, right? And that's exactly. And that's what Shaping Us, I believe, in the UK is doing as well. They are partnering yeah. with businesses. Yeah. Because that's it's the only way we're going to keep women in business. Yes, totally. Like, let's be realistic. Yes. And it's the only way that early childhood is going to be able to move forward and we're going to start getting what we deserve. Right. Yeah, I completely agree. So, and it's it's the only way that we can realize your true physical, emotional, social, human potential. I don't, you know, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. You have to be. Yeah, you do. I mean, we're a hopeful bunch. How could you work with children and not be hopeful, right? I mean, so- we've got that going for us. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, And the best part about us is that we're also an actionable bunch. Nobody can say that early child educators sit on their bottoms and do nothing. So we just now need to, you know, put our energy where it's going to be most effective. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think to your point, Carla, I think you said this throughout, it's finding other spaces and places that have done the work right? What's worked for them? What's different in your region, your locale, like your area? Because, you know, in California, they did a great measure that was hyper-regionalized. It's local, right? Versus, because they're so big, right? It's versus like Connecticut's a small state. So we sort of look at it as a full state. So it's like figuring out what works for your area and your space. Exactly. And then read the research, right? There's so much research out there. And that is definitely something that I know I can increase doing. And I'm sure most of my listeners can increase doing as well. Yeah. Awesome. Alex, this was so great. Thank you so much for your very valuable insight and just keep doing the work you're doing. Thank you. It's so great. Thank you for uh, bringing our voice out, getting us together and thinking about this critical issue. Nice to be here.